If you're trying to figure out the difference between eccentric and concentric orientation or yielding and overcoming, this will be a good video for you. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, coming off a solid weekend. Had my first combatives, very exciting about that. I survived it, didn't get beat up too bad. So it was kind of fun. I'm looking forward to a big week this week. Um, today's Q&A is with Ryan. So I got a chance to talk to Ryan. I've known Ryan for a while. Ryan's a great coach down, down in Kentucky. So if you're ever near uh, peak fitness and sports training, I suggest you stop by and see him. It'll be, it'll be uh, worth your, your efforts. Ryan is, is kind of a superhuman when it comes to, to picking up heavy things. He's incredibly strong. Um, he only weighs about 200 pounds, but I think he's got a triple bodyweight deadlift or something like that. So maybe even more than that. Um, the the Q&A covers um, a lot of uh, review concepts that I think are, are still somewhat confusing for people, and I, and I understand that. Um, so we talk about eccentric, concentric orientations, yielding and overcoming actions, and we start to put them into some context. So we talk about cutting, um, a little bit of power lifting, and um, some individualization of training. So again, I think this is a really, really good review call for, for a lot of people. Um, to help clarify some of, some of these concepts. So if you have any questions um, or you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consult, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. We are rolling. Clock has started. All Fire right. your question, young man. All right. I want to kind of dive into some more of the nuance with the eccentric, concentric orientation um, versus the yielding and overcoming. And so I think the biggest thing is, you know, to what extent is it useful to uh, prioritize a yielding strategy over gaining some eccentric orientation? Okay. I know like, you know, with an athlete, it, it can be very dependent on what the needs of the sport are. Um, but, you know, to my way of thinking and the conversations we've had, the only way I'm, I'm going to get eccentric orientation is, is more or less to stop training. So <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. Okay. So let's distinguish between the two first and foremost, because it's very distinct. Okay. Muscle behavior is, de is determined by eccentric versus concentric orientation. So, so we're looking at a moment in time and we're looking at a, at a relative length of the muscle tissue itself. So this is the part that actually contracts based on the nervous system input. Mm -hmm. This is what determines range of motion. Yielding and overcoming is connective tissue behavior. This is a viscoelastic tissue that behaves very specifically based especially on the rate of loading. So the faster that I load a viscoelastic tissue, the more resistance it, it provides, the stiffer it behaves. The slower I load it, okay, and again, we're talking relative relative speeds here because some things look really, really fast, but from a relative standpoint, the tissues are being actually loaded at a slower rate. So if I were to make a comparison, if I jump off of a box, so I jump off, let's just say I jump off of a, of a 20 inch box mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I land, that is actually a slower rate of loading compared to a max effort back squat because the max effort back squat load is instantaneous. It is already there. 
Whereas as I'm coming down from the box, I have an anticipatory concentric orientation of musculature. And then as I make my initial contact, like where I barely touch my toe. So again, we have to, we have to look at this thing in really slow motion. You look at the duration of the exposure to get to the point where the maximum load is applied based on the, on the force production. There's a lot of time in there compared to an instantaneous load with, with a heavy weight. Right. So, so that distinguishes the two elements of behavior. Like I said, a lot of people get confused because we, we talk about a yielding action when we're going into and out of a cut, which looks really, really fast. And it is visually speaking, it is very, very quick. But as far as the rate of loading on the tissues, there is a time span where I'm moving into where I make ground contact so that the tissue has to expand or elongate. It stores energy under those circumstances. And then as I change direction and I, and I reorient, now the tissue can actually release that energy and, and it, it behaves more stiffly as, as I come out of the cup. Okay. Does that mm -hmm. help you distinguish between the two? Yes. Okay. Now, so if you have a situation where you have a great deal of concentric orientation, that's where you're going to see the greatest movement and limitations. So goal number one then is to create greater eccentric orientation to allow more motion to occur if that's the goal. Can we play off of this cutting example? Absolutely. So if I've got somebody who's just very uh, toned up, lots of training, they're going to go into this cut and they're going to maintain concentric orientation in most right. cases, it, which it, is what we want because then they can use the, the rebound of the connective tissues. Correct. If, if they can access that. Yes. If, what if there is not, um, they're so concentric that their ability to load the cuts is ineffective. Okay. So, so look at it at, at the two ends. So, so if I am, let's just say I'm concentric overcoming. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that is, that is a, a muscle that is prepared that is producing high force, right? And the connective tissues are, are stiff. So as I go into the cut, it's, I don't, I don't, yield as much. So the amount of energy storage that I use is somewhat limited, but my ability to come out of the cut is not. But the problem is, is that I never got the initial storage in the first place. So that's going to kind of slow me down coming out of the cut. Now let's take an opposing example where I have somebody that, that doesn't create the stiffness as well. So they go into the cut, they absorb this massive amount of energy and they're slow coming out of the cut because they can't turn it around and, and release that energy, right? So, mm -hmm. so there's a difference. And some of this is gonna be genetically determined. This is why some people are faster than other people is because their connective tissues are just better designed to do these really, really cool things. But we can train this. Mm -hmm. right? Just based on the way that are your loading strategies in the gym. If I'm a power lifter, you think about, um, I want the minimum amount of eccentric orientation that I need. And I need just enough yielding action to store and release energy as I make the turnarounds in my lifts. Okay. Cause if you have too much, then there's a lot of distance that could be created with with expansion or a dissipation of my my force production which is what i don't want 
I want it to be focused so I can, so I can create the, the lift. Okay. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm loading just any exercise, is it, is it pot? Am I going to be yielding or is it possible to get some eccentric orientation? Cause there's going to be muscular activity trying to allow the minimum amount of tissue length. Correct. Well, it, again, depending on, depending on what the goal is. So again, it's like, if I'm a power lifter, how important is my deep squat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it, it's just not that important to me. I need enough because if I'm competitive, I want to get, I want to get white lights. Correct. I want I want a good lift. So I need enough to access that. Now the, the yielding action does help me because especially with the turnaround, but think about this. It's like, if I yield too much, I dissipate some of that force that I use to actually lift the weight. And again, this is why some people are better power lifters than others. One of the reasons why you have superhuman strength for a guy that weighs 200 pounds is because you yield really, really well in your skeleton, but most likely the connective tissues that are directly attached to your musculature is very, very stiff, mm. right? And, and this is what you'll see with people that, that are very, very powerful, very, very explosive and very, very strong, right? The stiffer the tissue, right? If I can, if I can get it to yield, it mm -hmm. releases more energy, right? It's just, it's look, just go into the gym and just check your rubber bands. If you take the, if you take the skinniest rubber band that you have and the fattest rubber band you have, and now it's easier to stretch the skinnier rubber band, but mm -hmm. if I can stretch the fat rubber band, the same distance, which one releases more energy? The fat one. Absolutely. So you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, um, you know, it's some, some people need, 400 pounds on their back to create the yielding action. Mm -hmm. And you'll see this and, and you'll see an improvement in, in someone's squat, you know, visually the, the representation of their technique will improve under the heavier loads because it is actually helping them to create the yielding action that they need. So I want to take it to somebody who's got a little bit different needs than a power lifter, say like a pitcher, they need, they're trying to produce a ton of, um, propulsion in a very short time, but they need, they need the time to yield. Correct. Correct. What if the, they've got so much, just let's just call it extensor tone that's shoving them forward. They're late on late, um, concentric all over. Um, and I pull them back with some yielding strategies. Do, do they need to recapture some level of eccentric orientation as well? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, we always have to look at these people as individuals mm -hmm. and, and that's, and that's been a problem because everybody says, okay, you're, you're a right-handed pitcher. You need to be on the right-handed pitcher program, right? Mm -hmm. so all pitchers the same, which is not true, unfortunately. Right. Because if I take a pitcher that's five foot 10, 225 pounds, and I have a pitcher that is six foot five, 215 pounds, I got news for you. They produce the, the velocity in different ways. One needs a little bit more time. One doesn't turn as well. And the other one needs to, to um, be able to compress very, very quickly, mm -hmm. right? But he has more time. So again, we can't, we can't treat them the same way. We have to say, oh, you do it this way and you do it this way. And then we try to provide them the access to their potential. 
And that's why this is hard though. So yeah. it's, like, it's like you and I are having this conversation and you go, oh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And then you go and you look at a real human and you go, uh-oh, now what do I do, right? Yeah. But the, the principles don't change. It's just a matter of getting to know someone. So somebody walks in the door, it's like, I don't know exactly what to do with them. I get an idea and then we do something and then we see what happens. And then we, based on that, we do the next thing. And then based on that, we do the next thing. People think that they can predict what's going to happen. And I would respectfully disagree. It's like, I think we need to actually train these people over time. And that's how we figure this stuff out. Yeah. So I think one of the mistakes are at least the lens I was looking at in the past, I thought I was, you know, recapturing some, some range of motion that was, maybe eccentric orientation when I was doing unilateral work, but I was just getting better at yielding. Quite possibly. So again, it's like, it's like the, the, what you need to look at is, is you have to, to have some form of key performance indicator that you're going to measure against. You do your intervention and then you remeasure and you say, okay, what happened under those circumstances? This is how, this is how training should be because it's incredibly complex. There are, there are things that are going on in training that we have no idea about. Mm -hmm. I, I'm convinced of this. We have no idea. We, we don't even know what, what's taking place, but we have observations that we can use to say, okay, that was a good thing or that wasn't such a good thing. And then what we want to do over time is do a whole lot more good things and a whole lot less of the stuff that, that doesn't either seem to matter or creates a negative consequence, right? Everybody, everybody thinks that, that there's like a cookbook. You go, oh, okay, uh, um, you do this, you do this, you do this. And then good things happen. It's like, no, like you could do that, you know, again, you put everybody on the right-handed pitcher program. That's a right-handed pitcher. It's like, okay, three or four guys are going to do really well. Three or four guys are not going to do well at all. And then everybody kind of falls in the middle, you know, and we accept, we accept favorable change for the best favorable change. And I respectfully disagree about that too. So I don't know if I created more confusion for you. Maybe I got one, one tag along question. I think you can okay. answer. Go ahead. Uh, super compressed pitcher needs yep. to yield yep. um, or a young athlete who's maybe um, just doesn't manage gravity well, but they also need to add muscle mass and add size to produce for better force production because they're still underpowered. Okay. How, do you, <laughs> how, how, how are you measuring underpowered relative to what? Um, you know, in the case of a pitcher, I'd say maybe their, you know, their arm strength is low or, um, Again, how are you measuring? Like, what's the comparison to determine that that one they have the potential for it, and number two, um, like, like again, how do you know? I mean, versus, I mean, I understand that you can measure pitching velocity and things like that, right. and there's any number of parameters. But again, it's like, what are you using to determine this? Like, like what oh, is? So your, I would say maybe relative to peers, you know. Okay, but but again, you can't compare them to anyone but themselves. Right. So there, 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 I think lies lies a little bit of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, because genetically speaking, we just don't know. Right. And so again, I, I would encourage you to, to look at this from a process oriented standpoint. It's like, it's like, okay, if, if you think that he needs greater force production, if you think more muscle mass is the answer, do that and then see what happens. I'm totally okay with that. Right. But you better have some form of, of indicator to follow that's going to let you know very, very quickly. Sorry. If, if we're on the wrong path, we need to make a, make a, a change very, very quickly. Right? Perfect. I think, I think, again, 
the experience of working with people over time is 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 one of those elements that that is lacking because again people are looking for yes and no answers black and white solutions when the reality is it's like we are so gray it's not funny it's like if if, if you say okay this kid is underpowered we need to add force production go ahead and add force production but like i said have something that you're measuring against so you know that if i accidentally take something away that was that was important you know, if you take you take range of motion away from somebody that needs, you know, as much range of motion as a pitcher does, right? Did you help? You know, and there's probably times where, you know, adding force production, especially through their levels of, uh, there's differing levels of maturity, mm-hmm. where it's going to be like like, absolutely, we got to drive tons of force production. I want to drive, drive his ability to, to lift heavy things through the roof because I know it's going to contribute to performance, but that's not everybody. You can't put everybody on that same program because they're all at different places. Okay. Okay. That was great. Good. Yeah. I, I hope it's helpful. Um, if, if, you know, if you have questions, just, just send me an email. You know how to get a hold of me. We'll do. Yeah. <laughs> or or post, post them up in the uh, Facebook group. Okay, sounds right. good, I'll do that. All Thank right, brother, you. have a great day. Good to see you. All right. bye. Ultimately, that's what I want you to think about as you're learning and understanding these tests. It's like, yeah, it's really cool to throw somebody on the table and, and show the movement limitation, do something, and then make that movement limitation disappear, so to speak, right? But ultimately, what I want you to be able to do is go into the gym, just have people move, perform their exercise activities, and then be able to coach and cue them with, with that understanding. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Busy Tuesday, clinic day as usual. So we're going to dive right into today's Q&A. This is a conversation that I had with with Andrew and uh, Andrew's in a really cool place in his evolution as, as a coach. So he is working on becoming more reliable with his table tests and his interpretation. So we're actually going to talk through some of that. We're going to use a little bit more of a, of a shoulder frame of reference in this one, but we also talk about some of the confirmations that we use as checks and balances in the hip. And so we're going to talk a little bit about iterations and, and such um, that are, are very important when you're learning how to interpret these things. Ultimately, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to eliminate the table tests from, from necessity. And, and hopefully train the eye to be a little bit more effective um, using table tests only when we need to as confirmations or when we do get stuck and we do get stuck because this is very complex, it is very gray, and as I like to say, the measurements tend to be a little dirty anyway. So, um, Andrew, thank you for your participation in your question. I will see you on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call as we always do every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. So everybody have a terrific Tuesday and we will see you tomorrow. And the clock has started. What is your question, Andrew? So um, in the past year, I have started to use um, your sort of test retest method and I've really incorporated table tests into all of the work that I do with clients as a way to see where their body's at, so to speak. Um, And it's, really really good it's it's been perfect for all of my interactions with clients and my work with clients it's been very 
illuminating in terms of, you know, directions that I need to take uh, to help them. And I realized recently that I don't understand the utility of certain table tests um, that you mentioned in your videos. Um, And not that I understand the ones that I do do all that well in the first place, but I have some idea. Okay. So specifically the ones that I'm wondering about just to kind of narrow the focus um, are shoulder and hip. If we have time for it, um, adduction and abduction. And I am unsure of how or if there is a difference in what, let's say, a shoulder abduction test would tell us about um, dorsal rostral expansion, right? Um, Versus what an overhead flexion test would tell us about dorsal rostral expansion in that 90 plus range. Okay. So, So let's use the shoulder example first. Okay. All right, so uh, if we look at the way that the lungs fill, if you're taking your breath in, because of gravity, it's kind of like filling up a glass of water. So the lung would fill from the from the bottom up, okay? Um, and as we're gonna assume like upright stance under these circumstances, okay? And, and so as the lungs fill, there's certain space that you would be able to take up. So I would have to have certain expansion capabilities to, to fill that lung up. And based on the way that it fills, it actually provides us a physical shape that allows us to access movement. Okay, so that's what we're doing. When we're measuring people on the table, what we're doing is we're using these these movements to identify where you can expand and where you compress. If you compress, there is typically going to be a limitation in, in a specific range of motion. So when we're talking about horizontal abduction in the shoulder compared to flexion, there's going to be different spaces in the, the posterior rib cage where we're going to be able to expand to be able to access those movements. Because what I have to be able to do is change the physical shape of the rib cage, the position of the shoulder blade relative to the to the upper arm bone, to, relative to the humerus, to be able to access some motion. So when we're talking about something where, where we would use like a horizontal abduction test in the shoulder, that's going to be representative of of part of the the dorsal rostral area. So so the dorsal rostral area means the upper back, real simple, okay? But we're gonna talk about a very specific area, which is probably gonna be somewhere in the general vicinity of sort of the middle of the shoulder blade to the bottom of the shoulder blade. And again, we're we're talking about gradients of fill here. Um, So it's not gonna be an exact thing, but again, we can use it sort of as a target. So when we talk about dorsal rostral expansion, this is what we're talking about under most circumstances. So that horizontal abduction measure is going to tell me that you can or cannot fill up that space. Okay. If, if we're going to go overhead farther, that means I need more fill higher up into the rib cage. So now we're going to talk about that space that's above what I just talked about. So now we're talking about sort of that middle of the shoulder blade all the way up to to the top of the shoulder blade, which is going to be roughly, it's going to be somewhere between, you know, from T2 is the top of the the shoulder blade to, to the middle is about that T5 area. So we're going to talk about filling up that space. And for me to access an overhead reach 
in external rotation. So we got to be really specific about this because we're looking at external rotation measures. Our, our shoulder flexion is going to provide us a measure of external rotation. Our horizontal abduction are going to get, provide us a measure of external rotation. So to be able to access both of those positions to whatever would be their full excursion, I would need expansion in both of those areas. So now if I, if I measure somebody and I see this limitation, what this measure is now telling me is you're not expanding in this one specific area. So guess what? If I know where you can't expand, I know what activities to start to select for you because if I can create, help you create rather the expansion in those areas, I have now, um, recaptured the ability to access movement that you didn't have before. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So if you measured somebody and you did uh, an overhead flexion test with yep. the external rotation, yep. that shoulder blade would be wrapped around away from the spine just a little bit. Right. So, so it, it's going to be a little bit this way. And then it has to, it kind of does this upward rotation. And so the abduction test would be measuring a little bit more in the center, right? So, so right, because the right. shoulder blade, the shoulder blade is, is wrapping around this way towards my center. Okay. So hang on, hang on, okay. hang on, boss. Okay. So, so to, if we're talking about flexion, am I correct? We're talking about that to reach the end range shoulder flexion. Okay. So to do that, the scapula has to move into a position of, of inhalation in that, in that posterior aspect of the, of the rib cage, you would already have upwardly rotated the scapula in that position. So, so we're past that point. So what's going to happen now as that area expands, it's going to move the medial border of the scapula um, posteriorly and away from the spine. So you had that part away from the spine, correct? Because I have to make a space there, right? So, so it's going to, to re, as in my definition of external rotation, so it's, so it's not the definition that would be traditional because I talk about inhalation versus exhalation positions as ER and IR. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a space in that area. So you describe the space correctly. What's going to be included in that is you're gonna have that area of the spine from that middle area of the scapula upward, you're gonna have the spine turning in that direction as well. Because if the spine doesn't turn in that direction, there's no way that you're gonna finish that, that um, shoulder flexion measure. I have to have space, that posterior space has to expand, which means the scapula is gonna actually tilt back and, and again, re-inhale, if you will, in that position. Does that make sense? Got it. So. I'm wondering, like by traditional standards, it would be like this posterior tilt and then a little bit of, of, I think it would be considered internal rotation, which is not correct. It's actually external rotation because it, it would be described this as similarly as it would be in the pelvis. It, it, the way that the ilium moves in the pelvis and the way the scapula move are the same. And so that we should call them the same thing. And that's basically what I do. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'm wondering because I can't even think of a circumstance uh, because I haven't done the abduction test. Um, yeah. I'm wondering what would be a circumstance where either the 
abduction test would confirm like a suspicion from the overhead test or vice versa? Cause I can't even put myself in that head frame right now. Well, so, so they're, so they're both measuring aspects of external rotation, which is valuable because now I have confirmations of, of what my capabilities may be. And so let's just say that I have, I have one, external rotation test that measures in the so-called normal range, which is actually just an average. And then I have two tests that are limited, then chances of that, that one test that was actually supposedly normal, it's not going to be normal because I need that. I need all of the posterior expansion on the backside to have full external rotation capabilities. So I have three measures that I can confirm myself against. So now I can tell when someone is oriented in a certain position. So let's just say that I have somebody that has a thorax that is anteriorly oriented, but when I lay them down on the table, they tilt backwards. And so what that does is it would magnify, potentially magnify a traditional external rotation measure and it can potentially magnify shoulder flexion. Okay, so now I have a, a I have three tests. I have a, my my abduction test, my external rotation test by traditional measures, and shoulder flexion that will all help me confirm whether I have that posterior expansion capability available to me. And if not, like I said, it tells me where to target, but it can also provide me information as to whether I have somebody that has actually fallen backwards on the table. Because what that does is it actually turns the shoulder in such a way that, like I said, it would magnify a couple of my shoulder measures. So again, that's why, that's why this, these become valuable. That's why a battery of tests becomes valuable because now I have confirmations. Okay. Now here's the cool thing. Let's go back down to the pelvis for a second. So you talked about hip. Okay. So the hip is behaving the same way the shoulder does. So flexion, abduction, and external rotation measures are exactly the same in the pelvis as they are in the shoulder. So it's going to tell me whether I have that posterior uh, aspect of the pelvis capable of expanding under the same circumstances. The cool thing about that though, is that usually under most circumstances, unless I have a constraint change of some sort, like a, like a, like literally a structural problem that, that upper thorax and that pelvis are going to behave the same way. And so when I have limitations in external rotation in the hip, I'm going to have limitations in external rotation in the shoulder. So now I got double confirmation. So I can actually use my pelvis measures and my shoulder measures against each other to confirm my suspicions as to whether number one, am I measuring correctly? And if I am measuring correctly, which takes time. So you have to be reliable with yourself. Okay. That's what's important. So you got to take bunches and bunches of measures to get really, really good at it. So you can measure consistently. It's not about being able to measure exactly like someone else. It's you being, being reliable with yourself. But once I can do that, then I can start to use these measures if need be. Now, let me say this. Okay. You don't always have to use your table test. In fact, if you're working with somebody in the gym, I would I would say that you might never need to use them once you understand what these tests represent. Okay. So if I know that certain tests are associated with expansion or compression in certain areas, I also know how you move through space during an exercise. So if I'm watching somebody doing like some sort of cable chop activity or cable lift or a press or a push or a pull or whatever it might be, and I see something that, that seems a little off as far as that activity goes, I know what 
area of motion you're trying to access. So again, if, if I was looking at say you're watching somebody press overhead for whatever reason, and you see it that like they have to do this big lean to the side, they can't maintain a certain measure of, of shoulder position. I can actually use my, my understanding of tests to help me identify what the movement limitation may be that is causing this compensatory strategy that's being demonstrated. So again, this becomes very, very powerful because again, I don't want to have to do the table test. If I, can, if I can identify these things, if I can just take you through normal activities, I can watch you squat in the gym, I can watch you do split squats, I can watch you do toe touches, I can watch you do presses, I can watch you do pulls. And from watching you do those things and understanding how the movement relates to these areas of compression and expansion, I can now identify if there's a movement restriction or if you're using a compensatory strategy that maybe I don't want you to use because some of them are very useful, okay? But again, that's the decision that I have to make. Again, the table tests are not a necessity. They are to teach you to understand how we access these positions and movements. Once you understand them, you may not need them at all. Maybe they're confirmations at some point in time where you, because we all get confused. This is very complex, right? But again, once you get an understanding of where I should see expansion, where I should see compression. So my expansions are typically associated with finding that external rotation space. My internal rotations are more compressive. They're gonna, they're gonna give me um, a, a different representation of, of turning inward versus turning outward under certain circumstances. And so once I see those things, it's like I can watch somebody do a split squat across the gym and I can say, uh-oh, I got a little bit of a movement limitation over there and I can identify what it, what it most likely is. And then I can say, I need to change your, your movement strategy. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, something like, again, split squat always pops into my head. It's like, well, when will I use a, a, an offset loaded split squat where I put weight in one hand and not in the other? And then where am I going to position that weight? So if I have somebody that I see across the gym and they're doing a split squat and I see that, that knee deviate laterally as they descend into the split squat, well, there's my signal that that person doesn't have internal rotation available to them at that point, And I want them to have it. Now I can say, okay, that's going to be your lead leg on a split squat, but I'm going to put a weight in the opposite hand. So a contralaterally loaded split squat, and it's going to help you turn into that hip. So now you're going to have a a greater likelihood of being able to access that internal rotation. So ultimately, ultimately, that's what I want you to think about as you're learning and understanding these tests. It's like, yeah, it's really cool to throw somebody on the table and, and show the movement limitation, do something, and then make that movement limitation disappear, so to speak, right? But ultimately, what I want you to be able to do is go into the gym, just have people move, perform their exercise activities, and then be able to coach and cue them with, with that understanding. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I have, I have, um, since the beginning of the year, I've gravitated away from doing the tests frequently. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no perfect process, right? But right. I, I, I think it's really useful. It seems to me that it's very useful when you start working with somebody, um, or just every once in a while, especially if they're uh, somebody in pain, to, to do the full battery of tests, as long as they appear to be on board right. with that direction. Um, but I, I have noticed that like, it, it, the more you do them it, with a specific person, the more you start to see 
what's going on and it yeah. just relates across context. So that's, that's good to have that confirmation. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, I think it's fair that, that again, if, 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 if this is within your scope and this is within your capabilities, then I think it's okay. But, but ultimately, like I said, and I think in your situation, um, you know, where you are in, in your, your career, it's probably useful for you to have this understanding of them. I don't know to what extent you would need to use them. But again, if it provides you confirmations, if it provides you some, some element of guidance, if your clients are okay with it, then I, then I think that, that, that it becomes useful. But ultimately, ultimately, it would be really cool when you get to the point where you just look across the gym and you go, uh-oh, I know what's going on. Here's what we're going to do. And then you intervene and then you see it clean up. Those are the really cool moments. <laughs> right, right. And right? Th those happen very sporadically for me, but. Well, I mean. but they, they, they increase in number over time. Okay. So this is an experience thing, which, which you will acquire over time, just like everybody else does. The, the one thing you have to remember that it is an investment of time, right? It, it's not about following a cookbook and saying, oh, this does this and that does that. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding that, that we're playing in a very gray, complex area with a very complex system that doesn't behave the same way twice. Right. And, that's, and that's why this is hard. Okay. But but it's it's a puzzle game. It is. It is. Does that help you, young man? Yes, it's very helpful. Thank you. Let's do a case study on a client that's having difficulty managing a late propulsive bias. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. It is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, and I will see you at 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call, as usual. These calls have been great. Um, great group of people. We have, we have our regular people, and we get new people every week, so this is kind of exciting. They're great calls. I'm enjoying them. We go as long as we possibly can um, each call. Um, so, again, if you haven't joined in on those, please do try to make it because they've been very, very productive and very helpful for a lot of people. Okay, digging into today's Q&A. This is a call I did with Robert, and Robert has a, a client case that we went through where we sort of strategized how to deal with a situation where we have a client that's biased towards late propulsion. They're having some issues associated with that. How do we bring them out of that? So we talked programming and strategy. We talked about management of activities, which is always a tough call. It's like, what do I take away? What do I still allow your clients to do? So we talked a little bit about that. And we even got into some, some foot management stuff associated with, uh, with bunions at, at the end of the call. Um, I've had a couple calls on bunions. So I'm going to try to put together um, one, one of these Q&As that's specifically about that. Um, so that, that should be upcoming. I can't tell you exactly when because it's going to require a little bit of editing on my part. And I am not technically skilled, even though it seems like I do such a fabulous job on these calls. Um, anyway, enjoy this call. Um, post your questions. Go to askbillhartman at gmail.com if you have any questions or you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation. So again, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. Recording. Robert, what is your question? So I've got a client that presents quite, quite similarly to uh, a photo that you put up in uh, one of the IFAST University calls. Okay. Uh, it was uh, a photo from Ireland. I don't know if you remember it. And it was a, it was a guy that had... Uh, 
quite a lot of concentric orientation in his left hamstring and uh, quite a, a late, late uh, propulsive left left foot. Gotcha. And uh, I've got a client that's kind of similar presentation, but uh, and I'm really the goal is trying to reduce uh, the kind of stiffness and tightness in the left hamstring, um, okay. and they're really sort of struggling to get around that and and move uh, move on from that sort of problem at the moment. Uh, so I wonder if there's anything that you could uh, help with that. Okay, so 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 let's talk about where his representation is now. Yeah. From a strategy standpoint, I think I think there's a couple of things that, that we could probably do um, based on that. Okay, so um, you said it was left side. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so if if I am in a late propulsive strategy on this side of the pelvis, what that means is that I'm going to be turning the sacrum away, right? So it's going to try to turn the sacrum to the right. So I'm going to push from behind here. And it's going to turn the sacrum this way, right? Yeah. So what would be happening is that the center of gravity is traveling forward over the foot, right? Now, chances are when he's standing still, his heel's still on the ground, correct? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, but he he's oriented as if he's trying to lift his heel from the ground. Okay. Yeah. So what I have here is a situation where I have a lot of concentric orientation here, I'll be concentrically oriented all the way down the extremity because I'm trying to propel myself forward. I'm trying to get my center of gravity forward and my heel up. So what I have is a, is a constant state of, of, of load on that extremity. Because the load is instantaneous, the connective tissues of the foot, the, the lower leg and the pelvis are all going to be in an overcoming state. So that's a very stiff, representation of connective tissues. Now, it would be really nice if I could just reel that in, but I don't think that that's the easiest way to do that, do that with, with this type of a person. So what we can do is we can take him to a place where we still have concentric orientation of the same musculature, but we have a different load on the connective tissue. So we can actually reduce the rate of loading on the connective tissues by moving him all the way back to an early propulsive strategy. So when we talk about this kind of a thing, we're talking about the heels elevated element because what that does is it takes a foot, I'm gonna use a foot here real quick. Yep. It takes a foot and it moves it into this early propulsive representation. So the difference between the late and the early, it looks very much the same. So if I tip, if I tip up the, the late here and I tip up the early, it looks very similar. But the difference is, is that I'm, I'm getting the uh, elongation of connective tissues. So this is anything that, that is not contractile tissue, including the skeleton. So I get this, this resilience um, returning to the to the connective tissues where they can expand and actually start to store energy, because right now all you have is a perpetual state of load, and we have to reduce that. Okay, so again we start to move him back. So, and again using just a simple representation of that, we would use like the heels elevated squat concept. Um, we would use uh, if we're doing like a split squat, you've got a front foot elevated split squat, but I would do a heels elevated split squat under those circumstances, because if I can bias the foot towards early, I'm going to bias the entire system towards that delay strategy on the affected side. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, so let's just, let's just talk programming here. 
Okay. okay. Yeah. So under most circumstances, I gotta I gotta create the delay. I gotta slow the left side down. So under those circumstances, I'm gonna want to shift my my center of gravity backwards towards that that left heel. So think about all the other activities that you could probably do in the gym that would do this. Now, I want to reduce the loading strategy on that left side as well. So this is where anything where I'm pulling a cable downward is going to actually unweight me. So think about if I was in a staggered stance, so right foot forward, left foot back, and I was doing a, a, a cable chop towards that left side, well, that shifts me backwards, but because I'm pulling a weight down, it actually, the weight is pulling me off the ground in that direction, yep. so it actually unweights me and makes it a lot easier to reduce the connective tissue load, and now I can actually recapture that yielding action a whole lot easier. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it does. Yeah. So, so again, from a strategy standpoint, I think there's a lot of things that you can do here. Um, he can still train, but you've got to start to think about, okay, what is the rate that I'm, that I'm loading this in? If he is pushed towards any element of this, this overcoming action of the connective tissues, you're, you're just, you're going to, you're going to be fighting a battle that you can't win. You've got to start to move him back. You started cre creating delay strategies. That, that takes kind of at the moment, things like running and, and that kind of stuff out of the equation a little bit, right? Because I'm afraid so. Yeah. I'm afraid so. But again, it's 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 not that he can't train. It's just right. that he may not be able to do some of the things that that he enjoys more, which is an unfortunate circumstance. Now, having said that, having said that, the way that I tend to address these things, un unless it's overt interference. So if you got like a, a marathoner that does like really heavy mileage. Right. I tend to not take things away from people unless it's obvious. And like I said, it's got to be this overt interference. So it's like, you know, like somebody that's got upper back compression and they want to do back squats. It's like, okay, let's, we got to take that one kind of off yeah. the table because yeah. that's pure interference. Right. But it's like I said, you know, if, if, if he wants to do a, like a different type of running under certain circumstances. So, you know, with, when I have a distance runner that's breaking back into a running progression, we'll have them do um, tempo runs on grass or yeah. something along those lines that changes the surface and then changes the, the uh, pace. So, so they, they load their tissues a little bit differently, right? So, so that might be a useful strategy for you. Maybe the, the conditioning becomes you know, some, some element of um, something that would put us in, in sort of a, a, an early propulsive foot position. So like a backward sled drag or something like that, that's an early propulsive strategy. But again, it's kind of conditioning oriented, not running, of course, but, you know, you, like I said, you might have to limit those things. Okay, cool. And then um, like pre, pre sort of training, if you were, if there was going to be any running going on, is it, uh, sort of a good idea to try and use uh, some of the those types of activities prior to running to get get a bit more of a yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so so think about it. it's like okay if I can create any element of this of this yielding action um, then that's where I'm going to sort of initiate the 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 programming so they at least start in a good state yeah and again maybe maybe you capture enough of it that okay, we, all we have to do is sort of just back you off and then ramp you back up, mm -hmm. utilizing the, the, these new activities 
to actually maintain this connective tissue behavior that we need. Okay, great stuff. Yeah, and I suppose there's a little bit of a follow-on from that. So kind of one of those clients that actually, when he's, when he's training, the, the movements, they, they, they look pretty, pretty good, right? So uh, a slightly different point, but there, there are clients out there that uh, sort of hide compensations quite well, if you like. Or, or better than others, anyway. Uh, is that is that a fair thing to say? I was just wondering if if that's the case. It's certainly in in a scenario where we might be doing more digital type type sessions and that kind of stuff. Um, if that's the case, then uh, ha is there any strategies that you might use to? Because you can't necessarily do sort of checks and balances with those kind of clients before and after. Or you can, but yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. All okay. right. Yeah. All right. So we, so we understand that as people move through space, that they're going to go through expansion, compression, and expansion strategies, right? So what we want to do is we want to have a representation of what that actually looks like. And so um, because we're short on time, I'm just going to direct you to a few things on, yeah. on the YouTube channel. So, so go through some of the, the breakdowns. So I did a, a, a pretty extensive half kneeling video i recall we've done a bunch of split stance activities so from those what you should be able to capture is that there's a certain place where i'm going to be biased towards expansion and external rotation there's a certain place where i'm going to be biased towards internal rotation and compressive strategies and they do have a representation there's a visual representation of those and so you start to to take that concept and apply it to your coach's eye and then you can start to say oh okay so when I see somebody go into a split squat and I see that one hip higher than the other, I know that they're not acquiring internal rotation. So what I need to do then is within my program, I need to make sure that I'm selecting an activity that captures internal rotation in that position. So now you make modifications to ipsilateral versus contralateral loading, elevation of the foot, elevation of the rear foot, right? Do I need to move you off off the imaginary sagittal plane and start to move you from side to side more, right? So doing, there's a difference between doing a backward sled drag and doing a, doing a crossover sled drag, right? So under those circumstances, those are for different pelvic orientations. So I have to take that into consideration as well. So, so again, it's like, you know, if you understand where these, these external rotations and internal rotations are supposed to show up, I think there's a lot of things that you can, that you can do. It takes practice. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah. I make mistakes too. Yeah. It's okay. Don't hurt people. Don't yeah. hurt people. Always do safe experiments. Right. But that's how you're going to figure this out. It's like, okay, there's a representation that I think is going on. I'm going to apply an intervention and then we're going to see what happens. So if you do something correctly, in many cases, if they've got the adaptability available, they should change very, very quickly that you can actually see the difference in the before and the after. So you always want to have something as your comparator. So when we do these complex movements, they're very, very good because you can see when it gets better, right? Yeah. You just got to have a representation of what you're looking at, what it means to you, and then apply an intervention and see what happens. That is, that is an appropriate trial and error and, and safe experimentation is very scientific. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, that's the job most of the time. Well, it is, it is, but underappreciated. 
Everybody thinks that there is a way and there are many ways, right? We just need to understand what our intentions are and then have a, like I said, a key performance indicator to let you know when you're making the right selection. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay. Yeah. How, are we good for time or will we, will we go? Oh, let me see. You got three and a half minutes. You got something quick? Three and a half minutes. Um, so it, back to that sort of first client, he presents with a little bit of the, you know, the, the sort of the bunions on the foot as well that are kind of pointing him in the right, in the, in the direction he wants to go kind of thing. Understood, understood, yeah. yes. I was wondering if, if, you, if you worked hard enough around that, would you expect that to change at all? Or is that kind of like uh, cemented in now? So, so the answer to that question is it depends. So, so those things can progress to the point where, where they're not very changeable other than with a, an, a surgical intervention. Um, within a certain range, again, it depends on how much change there's been, that you can make changes, right? Because again, some of these, some of these orientations are, are just bony and, yeah. and bones do move, bones change shape. Um, so, you know, I'll have certain types of feet that will come in and people say, well, I, I've had this foot for a long time, but they've got enough adaptability. You've got to provide the right influence. So what you're looking at, just so you have an understanding of what you're looking at, that, that bunion evolution is, is, is internal rotation of that first ray of the foot. And it creates a twist right at the MTP joint, okay? Oftentimes you'll see the same twist at the knee or you'll see the same twist at the pelvis. You can't, you, you, you won't make a change if you only concentrate on one part of the body, okay? You've gotta consider all of those, those top-down influences as well. So make sure that you're capturing your foot cues. If you, if you have a situation that, that um, if the arch is low, you're, you're gonna have to do something that might provide an arch. And so maybe that's, that's a, a selecting a type of shoe, maybe it's an orthotic situation, or I, I, if you have an athletic trainer handy, they can do some tapings to, to test run it for you, which is always a great way to find out if you need to make a, a, a foot change there. Right. So again, it's going to depend on, on the actual representation that you're looking at. But in most cases, you're looking at somebody that's trying to drive internal rotation very aggressively, which means that they're missing it somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so now you've got a situation where, okay, I need to capture my external rotation so I can have a bigger space to acquire my internal rotation and then take it away. So the foot doesn't have to be the, the compensation strategy. Right. But I think that we go back to the beginning of this conversation. It's like, okay, where am I going to capture that first? I think you take these people back to, to this early propulsive strategy. And again, maybe make a foot, a, a shoe modification or an orthotic situation along with that. And I think that's where you're going to start. Great stuff. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill. Well, you're very welcome. I appreciate you. Thanks for participating. I appreciate it. Cool. Hopefully the university call. I'll catch you on the next iFast University call. Oh, okay, excellent. We'll see you there. Happy Thursday. I have Neural Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Hey, Bill, talking about the vastus lateralis, I heard you say in one video that it pulls, that it twists the femur into internal rotation. If it's on the lateral aspect of the femur, how can yeah. it do that? So where, 
<clears throat> so again, you got to look at where it attaches. You got to look at the orientation of the of the of the muscle fibers themselves. And then you got to we, we have to also look at it in context. Okay. So if I fix the distal attachment, so VL comes down, it contributes to the to the quadriceps tendon, it attaches to the patella, the patella attaches to the tibial tuberosity, right? So if I fix the tibial tuberosity, right? So basically, it's basically putting your foot on the ground kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Put my foot on the ground and, and I, I contract VL because of its orientation, because of its position, it's going to create an internal rotation force on the femur, but it doesn't cross the hip, mm -hmm. okay? So it's gonna twist the femur inwards first. Then it's gonna hit, a, I mean, eventually you run out of like bony capability, right? Like the bone can only twist so far. So the bone twists inward, and then it's gonna pull the hip with it, eventually, eventually, right? Got it. And, and, and unless you have another force that's acting on the other end, which is gonna hold it into external rotation, which is really common, okay? But that's basically what you're, what you're gonna end up with. You, you do have a force that turns it into internal rotation. You also, have, you also have that downward force into the ground that's gonna to contribute to that whole mechanism too. But as, if we're just looking at VL and its behavior, it's going to provide you that type of a turn. Okay. Now that we're talking about some muscles too, um, with shoulder impingement, compression below the level of the scapula, you got the biggest muscle there, the lat. The lat attaches to that, uh, uh, to, the, to the humerus and does extension and internal rotation. Is that why you said that when you have compression, or one of the reasons why you have, if you have compression there, it's gonna steal early external rotation from the scapula because it's, it's pulling it into that um, rounded shoulders, uh, internal rotated position. Is that why? Because that's one but of what the- But what, what if I fix the humerus, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, so, so you're using that dead guy representation of lats. Yeah. yeah. So um, are you sitting at a desk? Yes. Okay, would you stand up please? Yes. And put your hands on the desk. So, so your arms are straight and you're kind of leaning on your hands. Okay. Yep. Got it. Okay. Yes. You got weight on your hands? Yes. Arms are straight. Yes. Awesome. Pick up your right hand, push through your left hand and turn your body to the right, but don't move your, don't move your arm. So, so you're going to turn, you're making a turn to the, to the right away from your left arm. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's latissimus dorsi turning you to the right. That's my, my left latissimus dorsi because I'm putting the weight. That is correct, that. sir. Your left, your left latissimus dorsi just turned you to the right. Okay. Got and it. it just put you, it just put you in a position where external rotation exists. So that compression on the back of your thorax moved external rotation from straight ahead over to the to what is now your left so there is no space in front of you where you can access external rotation because of the compression on the back of the rib cage do you understand 
Do you see it? So it's turning me into external rotation. It's orienting you. Orient. It's orienting you into external rotation. That is correct. But external rotation, if you had full excursion and, and you were able to expand that posterior rib cage, external rotation would still be straight in front of you as you initiate arm elevation away from your body. But because of the compressive strategy on the back side, it moves it over that way because it's changing your, your physical shape and therefore the space around you to access that motion moves from here to over there. That compression, okay. It moves it from more of that straight ahead plane, that sagittal yes, sir. plane. More so what happens, so if I am compressed in that area and I don't have the external rotation space to, to, to create a space for movement, I immediately go towards my internal rotation behaviors and that and then I run out of internal rotation at 90 degrees and that's why people walk in and they go my Hawkins Kennedy is positive and they say I got impingement and everybody goes oh you have a rotator cuff problem okay you have a rotator cuff result okay potentially but it, it is a it is a a compressive strategy that changes your physical shape, which means that the space around you changes as to where you can access motion or how you access motion. It doesn't mean you can't put your arm in that space. It just means that the way you're gonna do it is not going to be with what we would consider normal relative motion, which provides us ease of motion, right? You're gonna, you're gonna have a limitation based on the physical shape of your body, okay? now. The way that you described it the, with the lattice, the internal rotator extender, is that what you said? Yeah, extender. That does work to that does work to a to a degree. It's so degree. it's not a useless model. It's just mm -hmm. probably not close enough to reality. It 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 runs out of, of usefulness too soon, if you will. Got it. As far as providing a solution. Because the minute you expand that space back there that you just compressed with your latissimus dorsi your motion comes back and you eliminate what, what would be diagnosed as an impingement. Question about the right oblique uh, orientation and <laughs> ER measures. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but when we get the right oblique, the left lower posterior starts to approximate sacrum and ilium and it drives it up and over. So you got to be careful. Yeah. Generally speaking, you're on the right track, but it's not going to be posterior lower. Okay. It's going to be upper. It what? It's it's higher. Okay. So oh, okay. so once again, it's like it's like we we <laughs> we're kind of talking about the same thing again this morning, right? It's like it's like okay, we call it a muscle, and then it gets all distracted, <clears throat> and we got parts of muscles that are actually behaving separately from other parts of muscles. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, a name of a muscle by tradition that will guide you in this. Okay. okay. If you looked at piriformis, okay. And if you concentrically orient a piriformis, that will that will guide you to an understanding of the creation of the, the right oblique axis. Okay. Do you want me to show you real quick? Yeah. So so if we look at, if anatomically speaking, if we look at piriformis being like right, kind of like right there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so I'm going to do it on this side because I'm, I'm a better righty than a lefty here. All right. So piriformis is right there. It's actually on the front side here. Okay. Yeah. So, so if, if piriformis runs 
roughly like if you were if you were trying to find piriformis on a on a human being you would say where's where's the greater trochanter and then where's the psis and you draw the line in between them right right yeah okay so if i contract piriformis what's going to happen they're going to come closer together and you're going to uh -huh. Yeah. So, yeah. so I have this diagonal line that's going to try to be a straight line. Yeah. Okay. Th think about that. Because everybody's going to go, oh, you externally rotate. Don't think that way. Mm. Approximate the two ends to make it the shortest possible distance. Okay. So what happens under those circumstances is that it's going to pick this up. So, so it's it's on this angle like this. Yeah. If I contract piriformis, it's going to shorten in this direction, right? But it's going to do that. Yeah. Okay. And so what it looks like is that. Gotcha. You see it? Yeah. Yeah. So so that that's what pushes you on that. So so if, and if you look at it like this, and and you appreciate the fact that piriformis is not a flat muscle, it is it is in this this diagonal helical orientation, right? So if I shorten it, it's going to go like that. It's going to pull this closer to this, and it's going to do that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You see it? Yes. Yeah. So that's not posterior lower. Posterior lower compression pushes me straight forward. Ah. Uh, okay. Ah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you see the difference? Yes, I do. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So so again, and it's like, and then you have the then you have the question marks. Like, well, why would I choose to do one over the other? Well, okay. How tall is your how tall is your nominate bone? How wide is your pelvis? Right. What is your helical orientation? How wide is your your ISA? It's like all of those things come into play from a mechanical standpoint as to what is the best strategy under the circumstances for you to apply to manage gravity. And so there's 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 subtle differences in how you would do that. Right. It's just like somebody that's seven feet tall, you know, walking against a really strong wind and somebody that's five foot two walking against the same wind, different strategies. Right. Right. And so when you would go to your testing under those circumstances, would you expect the hip flexion to be more limited than the external rotation 90 degrees? Uh, what, what, uh, which side are we talking about, boss? Left side. I, I can't hear you. Left side. Left side. Left side would, would initially, initially have more ER. Initially. 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 Because so so again, there's not one oblique, there's not one axis that this would tilt on. And how far forward is the center of gravity? Right. The farther forward the center of gravity, the more I start to get that little trickle-down effect on the posterior aspect of the hip, where I start picking up more concentric orientation. You understand? And you mean so you would eventually maybe get the posterior lower? If you're so far. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You will. You will. But I. But I have to push you farther forward. Got it. You see it. So I'm tipped up on this on this oblique, and it's like, oh, hey, you know what? You don't lose internal rotation right away either. Right. Right. Yeah. The you don't. Up. You don't. But if I keep pushing you forward, it starts to disappear very quickly. Right. Okay. This is making sense because you've talked about it in several videos, and I think. Yeah about different gradations of it based on certain presentations. I'm like, oh, is that the oblique axis? Is that the one? And I'm trying did, to like find did you the say, one. <laughs> did you say gradation? Yeah. Okay. So that's the perfect word. It's the perfect word because that's why there's not one singular representation because 
because it, everything is a gradient, right? Everything's happening at the same time. So, it, so when I go on this oblique tilt, I may actually pick up internal rotation on the side where we talk about losing internal rotation. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. And yeah. then as I then as I keep shifting it forward because I gotta I gotta move my center of gravity so I don't fall fall backwards and I don't fall forwards right so I have to shift my center of gravity so I'm gonna move it forward and forward and forward but the but the but the shape of the pelvis has to change as I do that so I'm gonna start to pick up more of that that posterior lower activity you see it I got it yeah yeah and this is why this is why if you're doing traditional measures if you're doing traditional measures like yeah. initially you get this crazy external rotation representations where you get like 70 degrees of hip abduction, which doesn't even exist, right? But but it measures that way. And then you get the next person that comes in, you go, oh, they're on an oblique axis. I should expect to see all this crazy hip abduction and you get 15. And then you go, how is that even possible? They're on an oblique. I know they're on an oblique. And it's right. like, oh, they got shoved forward so far that, that the, the muscle orientations changed again. Right. And they lost the posterior lower, but they might, you might test them on the right side on hip abduction and they've started to pick up an expansive strategy in posterior lower because of the degree of the turn and they'll have more on the right than the I left. I don't think they'll pick up an expansive strategy. I think you'll, what you'll, what you'll see is that it just didn't compress as much because, because got you're it. not like, unless you've got somebody that's walking around um, with their, their butt cheeks sticking way back in, in relative to the other one, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like if you if you see that kind of representation, they got a whole lot of stuff going on there. But but that's what it would have to look like for you to for you to gain an expansive strategy, right? Yeah, right. So it'd be just relative too. So you might see like a, a, a somewhat limited on the right, but more limited on the left if you're that pushed. Okay, got it. Yes, and under those circumstances, you would see the traditional right shift in a squat. Got it. Okay, perfect. You see it because it, it's more expanded on the on the posterior right, and so if I squat down, I'm going to move towards expansion. That's why you get a right shift is because there's more expansion in that direction. And the reason you would initially have the ER on the left is because you just changed where that ER space is relative to the orientation of the pelvis. Yeah. So you you just tipped it forward, right, and turned it. So now straight ahead is really out to the side. <laughs> so so now we're back to uh, Christian. We're, we're back to putting your hands on the desk. Was it Christian? Yeah. We put his hands on the desk and we turned them. It's the same thing, right? Yeah, got it's it. It's literally the same thing. Like like what we just did that test with hands on the table, turn away from the hand, is what you just asked me about. Gotcha. Except you did it with your foot on the ground. Get it? Got it. All right. Um, let me give you a quick representation. Ready? Sure. Ever see a turtle? It definitely did. Okay. Turtles cannot applaud. Absolutely right. <laughs> Why can't they applaud? Because they're. They go to the concert. I they mean, love the songs. They love the band, but they just kind of sit there and they go, eh. Right? They can't. They can't adduct, yeah, at all. They, they, yeah. They, so they're out here. They're out here because they're flat on the front, big round back, plenty of ER. ER. Right? Mm -hmm. No IR. So you would say the turtle, um, 
IR windows smaller. I mean, they have to IR to go forward, right? They have to push into the ground and go so, forward. Yes, but but that's why they that's why they that's why they walk with their their feet out really really wide, right? Mm -hmm. there, you'll never see a turtle tightrope walker. That would be though. I would love to see that, by the way. So let's review the origin of a wide ISA archetype. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroConfie in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, what a busy week, but a good one. Um, wrapping up the week with a lot of stuff today. Mike Roberts and I are shooting a bunch of video for iFastU, so if you're not an iFastU member, I suggest you join up so you can actually um, join in the fun. We've got some great practitioners on there, great coaches, um, really evolving quickly. So the questions are getting really, really deep and very, very useful. So so again, please please consider that. Um, for the today's q and talked to uh, Larry down in Texas yesterday. Really good conversation. We I let him go a little bit long. He was the last call of the day. And um, so we had some fun there. You'll see it on the call. We were playing back and forth a little bit. But what we did talk about that I think is really important is the foundational representation uh, of the archetypes. We used specifically um, a wide ISA archetype that, that we built off of. And then we actually talked about why we have to use some form of representative model because we're, we're managing this incredible complexity. We don't understand it. And so we have to find a way to simplify that. So we talked about that as well. So again, very useful for your understanding. So I think you'll enjoy uh, today's Q&A. The uh, podcast of the, the Week in Review will be up on Sunday morning as usual. And then I will see you all next week. So if you've got questions, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys next week. I thought it might help me understand your model uh, because he clearly Why, is. Just ask me. I, I would rather, but I mean, you know, <laughs> your heart, your heart, you know, I don't know. You don't have a oh, book out Huh? I don't know if, if you have a book out there. I'd, I mean, I'm always watching. I, I watch all your videos over and over again. That. I appreciate it. I mean, it's, it's amazing the information and the way you break things down. But in any event, I um, um, now I've kind of lost my train of thought. But uh, when when you talk about a bias um, or when we say when you say that a the lower rib cage, uh, you have a narrow or wide lower rib, rib cage which biases you towards uh, either inhalation or exhalation, yes, right? Yes. And a lot of times people will say, or hear you say, um, uh, will say the widest bias towards expansion, right? Or inhalation. And then, but um, like in Bill's book, he says, you know, he says that it is an expansion, but he calls it a compensation and that the bias is towards exhalation. Yes. So, so I think sometimes those terms are used interchangeably, not by you guys, but other people. And then it gets kind oh, of because they don't understand it. They don't understand it. Exactly. So I'm going to the source. Okay. So, so what's the question? So, so, the hang question so, so yeah. So this is going to be a really good question. Go ahead and ask it. So the question is, <laughs> if you're wide or yeah. narrow, whichever, let's go with yeah. wide because that's what yeah. I am. Yeah. Then that means that uh, is my bias towards inhalation expansion and therefore uh, my compensation is uh, compression exhalation or is it something else? <laughs>
All right. So, so when you're, when you're a wide infrasternal angle individual that lacks full breathing excursion. So we have to be very, very specific here as to what okay. we are talking about. Okay. Because everybody has uh, a physical structure. Correct. We're talking about the people that lose extremity movement right. because of the compensations that they're using. So we have to be very specific about this. Okay. All right. So when, when I say wide ISAs or narrow ISAs and the things that I talk about, I'm talking very specifically about the people that have lost ranges of motion. Okay. Okay. Which means that they are using a compensatory strategy to breathe, which requires them to utilize superficial musculature that prevents. So if I'm squeezing or if I'm, if I'm, if I'm concentrically orienting muscle, so, so I'm trying to shorten muscle to create a breathing strategy, it's going to restrict motion in that joint that it affects. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. So for a wide ISA individual, my axial skeleton, okay, the axial skeleton, not the appendicular, but the axial skeleton right. is biased towards exhalation by structure. They're better exhalers, they're better force producers, right? They're better squeezers in general by the axial skeleton. Okay. All right. If my bias is to be a better exhaler, I have to figure out a way to compensate and breathe in. Correct. Okay. So for someone that is a wide ISA bias, the best strategy for me is to try to and again, you have to use your diaphragm to breathe. So I'm gonna push my diaphragm down, which is inhalation, which holds the ISA open wide. Yep. And that's why I talk about, I don't talk about numbers with an ISA. I talk about behavior of an ISA. So if my ISA is biased in a compensatory strategy to breathe in against the exhalation of my axial skeleton, it's okay. going to hold the ISA open. And so it doesn't close when I, when I exhale. Okay. So, you have, so a wide ISA representation. So the archetype of the wide ISA is somebody that has an axial skeleton that is a better exhaler than an inhaler. And then they cheat to inhale. And so it holds the ISA open wide, which is an inhalation strategy, but they're, bias that the axial skeletal bias their structural bias is exhalation and thus the wide ribs because your your strategy is to try to inhale and that's right. the only place you can and that's do why it. it doesn't but see that's why it doesn't move right that's why it doesn't close because i don't right. care what i don't care what the measurement is i don't care what the angle is people that are putting goniometers on on thoraces are just wasting time and effort because it's not the number that matters, it's the behavior that matters. Because it's the behavior that tells me what your bias will be. Okay. Does that, does that help you? That's just really helpful. And I'm assuming that I, would, would I be able to find this video to be able to go back over which some video, of the- Which video are you talking about, boss? The one we're doing right now. It, it, I'm gonna post it. Okay, so I'll be able You're to- You're famous now. Uh, yeah. yeah. You're going to be like, you're going to be the go-to guy down in Texas. 
Did it, did, did, did that help you though, as far yeah, as- it, it, it did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, uh, something I'll, I'll need to go back and, 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 you know, listen to again and think about sure. again, but yeah, it, it, cause I'm obviously I had a little backwards there. So, um, but it, it does. And then, um, I, being able to go back and look at this video and, uh, which I really will hate to do because I hate looking at myself on the screen. But, but the but, world's going to love looking at you, boss. Yeah, no, they, really, they really won't, but, but, I appreciate it. And uh, where else can I, I mean, other than your videos, I mean, how else can I get, uh, you know, um, learn more about your model? Because what I love about it, and you just talked to a guy the other day, um, uh, you were you were telling him um, that eventually you, you want to get to the point, especially people like me who, you know, train people all the time, where you don't have to do the table measurements that you can right. just look at somebody right. and say based on where they're not able to act what motion they're not able to access yes, that's sir. where i want to be because okay. in my business people don't want to sit on the table they do with you but they don't want with me yeah i understand that's why that's why that's why this this becomes so important is because it does provide you a representation of what's going on or, or at least a measure of understanding so you can be more accurate with your interventions right. rather, than, rather than random. Now there's, there's always elements, there's always elements of test, retest and safe to fail experiments and things like that because you're dealing with a crazy amount of complexity. What we're doing is we're using a model to try to simplify this so we can provide better recommendations. There's always an element of, of experimentation, but, but like I said, the, the understanding of this this model that, that I use right, helps me cut to the chase much quicker. I'm much more accurate with, again, with, with all of the, the interventions that you're, that you're going to use, regardless right. of whether we're designing an exercise program or a rehab program or, or whatever. Um, again, it all depends on, on which environment that, that I'm in. But, but, but that's the goal is, is to one, simplify this complexity because it is beyond our understanding. We really don't. I mean, there, there are so many influences that we don't even um, understand yet. Um, so we have to use heuristics, rules of thumb and modeling to, to make better decisions. So, so that is the goal. As far as where you can get access. So are you on IFAST University? I thought I was, but I'm not sure that I am because I don't I want to check because because that's direct access. That's direct access to to me and Mike Robertson. Um, yeah, so we, we talk about this all the time. So I'm I'm on I'm on calls like twice a month with that. Plus, we're, we're going to be we're actually we're shooting a bunch of video tomorrow that we're going to be posting. So so you'll have access to, to all those. Um, and then you're in a Facebook group with a whole bunch of other people that are on IFAST to you. And you get to ask questions every day if you want. That's great. And so by the way, that's I, I probably wanna... the best place for you considering sure. what you do for a living. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and, and I want to tell you that I, I, a really smart guy told me, or I, I read that he, he said, I didn't, you know, he didn't tell me specifically that uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. That's, that's George Box. I know, but you're the one I got it from. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I borrowed it from George Box. Trust me. I know, me. and you, and you referenced him. much smarter him. than I ever will be. 
<laughs> and you referenced him. You definitely gave him the reference. Yeah, but well, you're the one I heard. Everybody about. references him now, right? It's it's a requirement. Yeah. If you if you use the word model, you have to use the quote from George Box. <laughs> yeah, and I put that up on my board because it was one of my daily yeah. sayings. And then somebody came along and put right between model, I, they put super. Oh, that Very changes true. everything. It does change everything. It really changes everything. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. That's yeah, fantastic. I Thank appreciate you, sir. it. All I right. really appreciate it. All Take right. Care All right. You too. Bye.